Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'll be one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange, and we're here tonight with one of my favorite segments in the podcast series, and that's the Journal Club. But first, let me introduce our Journal Club resident professor. That's Dr. Bill Weiss. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be back, Scott. Especially, yeah. it's a lot more relaxed than the last time I saw you. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Do you have anything special in your glass tonight, Bill? I've got a glass of Rhinelander IPA, so a local uh, beer here. So all right, tasty. very well. Yeah, you like those local beers, don't you? Yes, there's yeah. plenty of them here too. So, yeah. <laughs> so Bill, I understand you know your neck, our, our guest quite well. That's Dr. Ferreira. Um, would you please tell us a little bit about him and how you guys perhaps met? Uh, tonight's guest is a professor at Virginia Tech, Gonzalo Ferreira. I met him back, I can't even remember how long ago, we met at a meeting and he talked about going to PhD, getting a PhD with me and a couple years later he contacted me again and I said, yeah, let's, let's do this. I think it was in the early 2000s. I think he graduated around 2006. So came to Ohio State in the early 2000s, got his PhD for me. Uh, then went on and uh, was hired by Virginia Tech. There was a gap in there, I know, but came back to Virginia Tech. It, it's mainly an extension appointment, I think, and you can correct me on that, but it's good, good to right. see you again. Good to see you, Bill. Yeah, so welcome, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Ferreira. Pleased to, pleased to have you on the, at the exchange tonight. Also, I don't want to forget my co-host. Uh, we're pleased to welcome back Dr. Glenn Ains. Glenn, as always, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Um, have anything in special in your glass tonight? Well, I think you'd appreciate this one, Scott. This is a little concoction that I made up. It's basically a diet Sprite, uh, some diet mango cranberry juice, and vodka to flavor. So, vodka. Uh, it's one of my favorites to sit around the pool with. Uh, ah, so are you, you, you next to a pool today? No, unfortunately, I am not. Uh, but when I get back to Florida, I spend a lot of time around my pool. So. Okay. And uh, just for a point of note, uh, uh, Gonzalo, it's, uh, I'm a, a hokey as well. Uh, but All I right. think there's, there's a big gap between when you were there and when I was there. So. <laughs> back in the uh, mid to late 70s, rather. So. Yeah. All right. So, Glenn, I'm having tonight, I'm actually having wine and cheese. And I was so, about to ask, where'd you get the cheese? <laughs> so, is... yeah, the, this is a seven-year-old uh, vintage cheddar, uh, compliments of Dr. Bill Weiss. And so I figured if I'm going to have cheese, I better have some wine with it. And this is our Renegade Red. Um, I don't uh -huh. think it's quite as old as my cheese. So, but it's very tasty, but I should probably explain the, the backstory for this kind gift. Um, so Bill was being honored at this past ADSA with a Bill Weiss symposia, right? It's kind of like the Lifetime Achievement Award. And unfortunately, Bill had been detained in Newark, New Jersey uh, since <laughs> Sunday. It got to be Tuesday afternoon and still no Bill Weiss. He was still stuck in Newark. And uh, his symposia was the following day, Wednesday at, at 2 o'clock. So we decided to kind of make a Smoking the Bandit-style midnight run to pick up some cargo. And in this case, the cargo was, was Dr. Weiss. So we drove all the way to, from Ottawa to Newark and back 
and we got Bill. Oh wow! Got yeah. Bill to the symposium on time. So, anyway, uh, Bill, congratulations yeah. on on the Bill Weiss symposium, and and thank you again for the cheese. Thank you, and you you went well beyond the call of duty for for picking the up. When Scott says when Scott says we, it's he. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I take the I take the opportunity. Sorry, Bill, I couldn't be there. I didn't go to ADSA oh. this year, so. Congratulations on the symposium. Thank you. Absolutely. Very nice. Well deserved. So, Bill, thank you for this. All right. Cheers, Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Yeah. As we dive into the paper tonight, uh, Bill, why don't you tell us how you selected uh, this paper for the discussion? Uh, the, the shortened title of the, the paper is basically Evaluation of Inclusion of Alfalfa Hay in Pre-Fresh Diets. I, you know, there's a lot of research on DCAD and pre-fresh diets, but not a lot on interactions of diet and DCAD. So this, this paper is looking how forage source effects response to DCAN. That's, that's why I picked it. Very well. Um, so kind of, uh, maybe we just go to Gonzalo, maybe kind of give us an overview of the paper, uh, how it came about, uh, and the hypothesis that you used as you got into it. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of a, a long story, but a very interesting story. Um, a few years ago, I think it was at the end of 2016, a company, a mining company from England contacted me to say, okay, we want to try this product as an animal product. What would you do with it? And this product is called polyhalide, okay? And polyhalide is a natural mineral. It, uh, the composition is a sulfate with calcium, magnesium, and potassium in the, in the molecule. So at the beginning, I didn't know exactly what what to do is, so what I did is I looked to the empirical formula and I did, I estimated what we call the DCAT, um, which is not that dietary cation and ion uh, difference. But anyhow, I said, okay, this seems to be like what we call a, a, a anionic salt. So we did a very preliminary trial. We put it at Virginia Tech in the diets of the, of the close-up group. And we, we didn't feed individually. And we saw that the urine pH was being decreased by using this product. So that was kind of the starting point, kind of based on the chemistry. I was not that wrong about the use of it. As I told you, what it was fascinating about this product, it, it has potassium. And usually when we, we, we see a feed ingredient that has a, a potassium, uh, we try to avoid it for prepartum diet. So that was kind of a contradiction. Um, then we did a follow-up study in which we did measure dry matter intake, also using the polyhalide. And we saw that the urine pH was, was going down again. Uh, it was confirmed. And based on that, uh, we were feeding a lot of this polyhalide. We were including like 400 grams um, per cow per day. And we were obtaining the, that acidification that we were looking for. Um, and that kind of was, was motivating, like, okay, I'm feeding a product that has potassium. 
two prepartum cows, and, and that is kind of goes against the books, if you want. Um, and then we crossed the roads with a grant from the National Alfalfa and Forage Alliance, which, by the way, they, they funded this project that we are discussing today. Um, and I said, okay, I have an opportunity here to do some work with alfalfa. And typically, we nutritionists, we avoid including alfalfa in prepartum diets because of that high potassium concentration. The problem with having a, a high potassium concentration is that maybe reaching that negative decad that we want to accomplish is a little more challenging. Um, but because in the previous study, putting a lot of anionic product, acidogenic product, we, we didn't have any issues. We said, okay, let's give it a try. Here at Virginia Tech, uh, we typically feed the close-up group with calcium chloride. Uh, as the acidogenic product, and typically we use grass hay. We are here in, in Virginia, we are in the fescue land, right? So most of the of the hay that we use is fescue hay. So that was kind of, uh, that is kind of our, our typical close-up uh, diet, at least here at Virginia Tech. Uh, so we use that as a, as a control, if you want. And then we brought alfalfa from, from the Great Plains and, and we, 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 we prepared this study uh, trying alfalfa, including alfalfa in, in this close-up diet. What was the hypothesis? The, hypo the working hypothesis is that uh, I, I, I've been in the industry, in, in the field for, uh, quite a lot. Uh, and I learned a lot that by experience that many times we have to feed what we can. Uh, and not what we want, right? Um, so many times we are challenged to maybe include alfalfa in, in these diets. If we would go to the West Coast, very likely there is going to be a, a, a lot of a alfalfa inclusion in close-up diets. Um, so yes, that was kind of the working hypothesis, was to test that we can feed alfalfa even with high uh, acidogenic products. We tried, we tested two products, um, and that the dry matter intake and the pH would be similar to that control diet that we fit typically here in the close-up pen. So I actually have to confess, I had to look the polyhalides up to even understand what it was you're working with. Uh, can you go into that a little bit more deeply from the standpoint of the chemical makeup? Because... It, it's got a fairly high sulfur level, as I recall, as well, right? It does. It does. That's a very good observation. Yes. So if you see the molecule, I don't remember exactly the formula, um, no, but okay. but you have four equivalents of sulfate. You have two equivalents of potassium, and that is that difference makes acidogenic, okay, from the decad perspective. And I don't remember how many you have. I think it's one on one on the on the magnesium and the calcium. So you have three uh, macrominerals, calcium, magnesium, and potassium, and then you have the, the, the sulfur as an anion. And just uh, for the audience, um, there's about a million decad equations out there. Just which which decad equation did you use? Because that is important in what you did. Yeah. That, that, that is very important, yes, Bill. Uh, and we use the, the, I think it is the most used. Okay. So we did the, the sodium and potassium minus the sum of the chloride and sulfate without the 0.6 correction on okay. the case of the sulfate. Okay. 
Yes. As I said, you're you acidified. One one is basically chloride acidification. The other one's both chloride and sulfate. And you know the theory is sulfate isn't as acidifying on a milliequivalent basis. And yes. whether it is or not is a little questionable. Your data says it's it's fine, so it did just as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there is data from from the Jesse Goff's yeah. uh, group that with sulfate, the, the acidification is not as strong. And, and we can see that in this paper in one of the diets. Yeah. And I guess one thing you brought up, and that's this idea that D, alfalfa is so bad in DCAD. And, you know, you, your grass hay and your alfalfa had the same DCAD, essentially the same DCAD, even though there was, I think, one, almost 1% 1 more K in the diet or more than a half a percent more K in the, in the alfalfa, not the diet. So I guess, is that a surprise that the DCAD is about the same, even though K is high? It, it, it was a surprise to us, okay? We were expecting to have a much greater... Let, let me do a, a, a... And this is for the conversation, okay? I, I, I don't like the idea of, of speaking of DCAD for the forage because the forage is a component uh, of the diet. It still has a DCAD. It still has a DCAD. Yes, but it's not. It's forage cation anion difference. It's not dietary. I mean, but anyhow, we, we, we can go there. <laughs> um, we were expecting a much greater DCAD for the alfalfa and a much lower DCAD for the grass hay. In this case, looking to the typical uh, values um, from NASM, we, we, we did use that database. Uh, the alfalfa was on the low side on the decad, and the grass hay was on the high side of the decad. And by by totally by chance, they ended up having the same decad, which was from a from an experimental perspective that uh, limited our our the possibility of of performing our main objective. Right, we were challenging with the alfalfa. But I think one thing people, you know, we get carried away on K because that's the most variable, but, you know, plants are electrically neutral. You don't get a shock when you touch a plant, which means if there's a lot of cations, there has to also be a lot of anons in it. It has to be neutral. And a lot of those anons are organic acids, but, but I mean, the, the, the chloride in these forages are higher than people think. That Most of the chloride data is very, very old. It, we don't have as much of it. Uh, so it's usually, it's still going to be very positive, but it's not as bad as think, we think because the, the chlorides are higher than we think. And sulfurs also are going up substantially in some of these forages. If you give us brief, now we don't want a lot of detail, but briefly on the diets, uh, so people have an idea of what, what you were feeding and again, just the main ingredient, ingredient compositions. First of all, this was a design in which we were testing two factors. Uh, one factor was the type of hay. We use mainly uh, mixed grass hay, which here in Virginia is fescue hay. And then we use alfalfa hay. We imported that from, typically the manager of the dairy uh, brings that from Kansas. Um, that is on one side. And then the other factor was the source of the acidogenic product. And that acidogenic product was either calcium chloride or the polyhylate that I told you. Uh, that is on, on the main things. The, the diet was, we formulated the diet to have at least 60% of forage. So the, like every uh, dry cow is a high forage diet. And we wanted to have 
at least 20% of that forage to be uh, either the alfalfa or the or the grass hay. Um, and then we formulate when we formulate the diet, the DCAT, we aim it to uh, uh, minus 160 uh, milliequivalents per kilogram of dry matter. We ended up having a, a little stronger uh, negative decade. Um, and then what else? Uh, one thing that we didn't, uh, honestly, we didn't pay much attention at the time of Russian formulation was on the sulfur side. By adding this polyhylite, the concentration of sulfur uh, ended up being greater than what we usually would do, than the typical recommendations. That is something that uh, Dr. Goff, uh, we were discussing about that once in a while. Um, and I'll, what else can I tell you about the diet, the diets there, Bill? Um, and then, yeah, we, we try to cover the, all the, the requirements on the energy side, not to have a high energy diet, of course. Um, I assume that the DCAD was similar in the rations before you added the acidifiers. But yes, we tried to do the diets as as uh, as similar as possible. In terms of the DCAD, the negative. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I was just in curious the, if the diet before you added the the DCAD, did you have to was was one of the diets any more? I assume they were very similar because the four. They were very similar. similar. Yes, they were very similar because, as as Bill was saying. By, by by chance, uh, the the grass hay and the alfalfa hay, they ended having pretty much exactly the same decad. So therefore, the the if you think about it, <laughs> the the, um, the base, the the fundamental of the diet, all the ingredients other than the acidogenic product, uh, they were very similar. So, hey, I might just mention, or I can just mention. You know, the, the calcium in these diets range from about 0.85% up to about 1.4. The alfalfa diets obviously were higher in calcium than the grass ones. That, that, that is correct. That is another very good observation, Bill. Um, yes, there was a lot of variation there, and we commented that in, in, in one of the papers, uh, in one of the comments in the paper, that yes, uh, this was not controlled for the calcium concentration. Maybe we should have improved that. Yes, uh, to me, I don't think that's an issue. I mean, as long as you've got plenty in there, I don't think it's an issue because you, with alfalfa diets, you expect higher calcium diets. That goes with the treatment. So, yeah, yeah, but also, um, I think in the calcium chloride, maybe you are putting a little extra calcium than 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 the polyhalide. You, you, what's not in here and it's become an interest of mine is phosphorus, especially with respect to hypocalcemia. Do you do you recall what that what were what they were? If you don't, we'll move on. Uh, I I do not. I do not. And typically, I, I I stuck more to that idea of you know uh, not supplementing phosphorus, but but that, that that is another thing that we should start considering. So they, you do have a fair number of byproducts in this, so it, it's it's probably plenty. I'm just wondering if it's it was too high, basically, but uh, we'll, we'll move on. Um, yes, we'll just get to the results. Well, first of all, again, it's important on how many cows and what was what were the cows, basically. We discussed those briefly. And right. Duration of feeding. Yes, yes. So let me talk a little about how we selected the cows. Obviously, we 
we did this in, in multiple scales. So all the cows were on, on their second or more calvings. Um, why did we do that? Because typically uh, multiple scales are more susceptible to hypocalcemia. So we did not have uh, any, any spring heifers here. Um, in a previous study uh, that I mentioned already, we saw that those cows that they had symptoms of clinical hypocalcemia typically were the oldest cows. So we, we tried to put as many old cows as we could in the herd. Um, so we used 80 cows. Uh, our herd is not huge, so it was kind of uh, hard to find the enough number of cows. And uh, what else can I tell you there? Uh, most of them, I would say that half and half, half of them were on the second parity, entering the second uh, lactation, and the rest would be third or more. Um, and what was the other thing, Bill, you mentioned? When, when did uh, they start on trial? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. But yeah, very good. So we we selected, the, here we have uh, cannon gates, and we have in, in in one pen, we can have eight cows at a time. So we we had different cohorts of cows of eight. Um, the idea was to block them. And what we did in, in one cohort, we chose them to start at least 35 days before the expected calving day. Of those 35 days, we used 14 days to feed a far-off diet and train the cows to the Calangate system. And then on day 21, we, the first thing that we did is we, we, we collected urine samples from those cows that they were consuming the far-off diet. And then after getting the urine sample uh, and measuring the pH, the cows started to uh, transition to the new, new uh, close-up diet. And that close-up diet was fed for at least 21 days, uh, depending on the cow when she was uh, calving, 21 to, I would say, uh, maybe 32 days. Okay. They were in the experimental diet. So in your, in your prepartum sampling, did you sample them based off of the... So you moved the cows into the pen when the first cow got within 21 days of her calving date, right? Yes. Let me clarify just in case. Yeah, yeah. So was a little the, the, Yeah. So the cows are in the far-off group, correct? We selected a cohort from there, a cow. <laughs> when the first cow was close to 35 days from the expected calving date, so the next calving, the first calving would be within the next 35 days, we moved them from the pasture into the barn and we kept feeding that far off diet, okay? That for two weeks and we collected that baseline urine sample, okay? With the far off diet. Then after we got that urine sample, we, um, we changed the diet 21 days from the first expected calving date Mm -hmm. And then uh, they started eating the, the experimental diet. So they were eating the experimental diet for at least 21 days. How, how far, maybe 21 to 
28 days, something along those lines in a cohort. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying before. Like, I think some of them actually were maybe 15 days, okay, because they kept before the expected coming day. And then uh, some others were 32 days. I think it was the largest. Okay. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and get into the results. And I guess the, one of the first things that caught me is that the cows fed grass hay ate more than the cows that fed alfalfa, which is almost 100% opposite of what we'd see with lactate cows. You know, they almost always eat more legume. So what, what do you think? And you had much more significantly higher forage NDF in that diet. What do you think is going on there? First of all, uh, I don't know exactly why you say, Bill, that grass hay, uh, uh, they ate more um, because um, yeah. if you see the figure of dry matter intake, pretty much, yeah. first of all, there was a tendency only for alfalfa to be lower intake and only in one in one diet. The diet was uh, alfalfa and chloride. Um, so... I, 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 I see I see what you're saying that typically with alfalfa you would expect more. I'm not sure whether here is alfalfa plus the chloride that tendency to eat less uh, on, on that particular diet. Um, calcium chloride, I think it's being used. I never used it for that purpose, but it could be used for uh, restricting dry matter intake in, in beef cattle. So I, I, I don't know if that is more like a, a bad side on, on the chloride on, on that treatment than that the grass was a greater dry matter intake. I mean, you, you say there's no interaction here on intake between DCAD and forage. And you say forage had a tendency 0.09. I just, yes. It was a whole kilo, almost a kilo difference. That's a fair amount. I, I said it's yeah. just very unusual to me to get grass to eat cows eat more grass than alfalfa just but but again that i i totally agree bill but but it's not that grass was higher it, it is that one treatment on the yeah. alfalfa was lower yeah so who knows um and the intakes were you know where they we'd expect them 10 11 kilos but i guess the other thing you know a lot of equations uh, are based on forage NDF, and this would for that treatment, it wouldn't it wouldn't fit the equations. Let's just say that. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, end of the DCAD stuff, which is to be the first of all, there was no interaction basically between forage and DCAD with respect to calcium metabolism, or very few my, minor interactions. Okay. Um, but it's just I mean, stating the factor. And first of all, you did. You got these urine pHs quite low, so they they don't question they're fully acidified. Um, is that what your what your goal was to be fully acidified, or there's this moderate acidification? You know, you're, you're right. The the pHs are very low, and here, <laughs> I, I, I when I was working in the field, I did a lot of urine urine pHs and all that. Surprisingly, here at Virginia Tech, they're always extremely low. Um, so, so yes, that is something that uh, that we need to learn a little more. I don't know if the water could be a component here, but consistently, it's very easy here to get a very good acidification. 
but they, I agree, they're on the low, on, on the very low side. And, and just for the audience, they're about five and a half for most of the treatments, which, you know, I used to say very low. They're low. It's just, I call them fully acidified. There's no question. Mm -hmm. fully acidified. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and hopefully there is very clear uh, for the audience that are listening. So we had a pH on the, on, on starting on the baseline with a far off diet around eight. And then when we started feeding all the diets, the pH was uh, fully acidified. Uh, the urine was fully acidified. Uh, so yeah, it was successful, the, uh, let's say it. And going back to the hypothesis, we, again, even though the decad of the alfalfa was not as high as we would like to, uh, we could bring down the pH of the urine feeding both alfalfa diets. And as expected, when pH goes down, calcium excretion went up. So it did, it fit, fit what's supposed to happen. That is correct. Yes. Um, but one thing that surprised me is you had a fair number of what you call clinical hypocalcemia. I mean, for DCAD, a lot of times won't necessarily reduce subclinicals that much, but it almost always eliminates clinicals. First of all, you know, kind of define what you, how you define clinicals. And then may, I'd like to discuss that because you had 10, 15% clinicals and that's very high for DCAD diets. Yeah. Well, I, I, after this paper, actually, Bill, I also have some conflict on terminology. Okay. So typically we say clinical hypocalcemia or periparturin paresis or milk fever. And we talk about those three as the same, correct? Um, now, what is the definition of clinical hypocalcemia? Looking to the concentration of calcium in, 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 in blood, typically we say that the clinical hypocalcemia, depending on the source, you said less than five or 5.5 milligrams of calcium per deciliter, if I remember correctly the unit. Um, what I'm saying here is that based on that definition, that threshold of 5.5, we did have a lot of clinically hypocalcemic cows. But the thing is that we didn't have those many cows with milk fever or peripartum paresis. So I, I don't know if you see where I'm going here, but I have some conflict with the, with, with the three definitions of uh, clinical hypocalcemia. We did have a lot of cows with low concentration of calcium, low enough to fit under the definition of clinical hypocalcemia. And apparently there are a few papers around that they have observed that as well. well I mean, to me, if it's clinical, it means you have to be able to see it, um, observe clinical signs. So I, that to me is, should not be based on blood levels at all. It should be the appearance of clinical signs. And you, you say in here, I can't find it right now, but you had a fair number that showed clinical sign, cold ears, shaky, that kind of stuff. Correct. And so that's to me, I, I define clinical as they have to show, show something. And then some yes. clinical is less than eight or whatever. Yes. And in the same way, as, uh, as we said, based on the concentration of calcium, we said that because if, if we read the definition of a subclinical hypocalcemia, there are some papers that said the only way of finding those, those subclinical cases, um, you have to measure the, the concentration of calcium in the blood. Well, based on that definition, 
we did have some cows that they had subclinical hypocalcemia, speaking of calcium, but they did have the signs, for example, the cold ears or some, you know, wobbly gait or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And when I when I taught this stuff, that's you know, I said clinical. You have to see it subclinical. You have to measure something, and so you define subclinical based on calcium, but you define clinical based on clinical signs, verified by a low calcium. Then, okay. So All I right. said, you still I can't find it right now in the paper, but you said something like uh, there's seven or eight cows that showed clinical signs. Correct. Yes. And that's yeah. still higher than what I would expect from a decan situation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know yeah. the reason. But. True, true. And again, based on all those signs, as I told you, mainly are based on, on cold ears. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the question is, um, I'm not trying to be defensive here, but uh, do we always track do we have a, a, a good metric, a good threshold? What would be expected? I'm not sure we have it. Do we? No, I don't know. Like I said, it's just if you read a lot of the DCAD papers on how they define clinical, and that's, like I said, is, is a variable definition, it's rare with DCAD. When they have DCAD, not DCAD, it's very rare clinical. Subclinical mm -hmm. is, is not eliminated. Like I said, so I'm, I just think, you know, high phosphorus can be contributing perhaps marginal magnesium. So some other things might be going on here as well. And it's just something to kind of think about a little bit. Okay. In the case of the magnesium, one thing uh, I, I, I didn't discuss in the paper for sure, but polyhalide has uh, a good inclusion of magnesium. So. Did you balance the diets then for mag? Well, no, we did not. I guess another thing with, with Jess McGart's work out at Cornell, who's done a lot and I think has really started changing the way we think of hypocalcemia. It used to be if blood, blood levels were low after calving, they were hypocalcemic. But now she's come up with a concept. I'm probably not going to get her terminology right. But if it's low the first day after and rebounds right away, she says that's perfectly normal. But if it stays down for a couple of days or if it's if it's kind of normal on day one and then it's bad at day two and day three, those are the bad cases. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just just to define it as low blood calcium on day one. If they, I agree. Did you happen to look at the, the, her papers are pretty recent, but did you look at what she, I think she called transient and prolonged or something? Did you look at that at all? Yeah. Uh, we did look at that, and, and, and again, when I say, uh, like, like you were referring, Bill, uh, that eight or nine cases that they, they show um, levels of, again, blood concentrations uh, below that 5.5, that means in our case that at least in, in, in one of the four measurements, the blood concentration was lower than the threshold, okay? So that doesn't mean that uh, they were hypocalcemic, speaking on blood calcium concentrations uh, throughout the four days, only one, at least one day had. And it happened at different days. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm aware of the paper of uh, McCart. I don't remember exactly the definition. I think one is persistent, transient, uh, and delayed, I think is are the, the, the three things. 
Uh, but we did look at it. We didn't, I don't, I don't think we had enough cases to do uh, statistics on that, to be honest. I know since she came out with that stuff, it's really changed the way I look at blood calcium data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And in, in, in our previous study, actually, we did a measurement at calving date and at seven days post calving. And actually, I don't know if, if Dr. McCart was the reviewer or not, but uh, the, the suggestion was to, okay, you should, you should, in the future, you should try to measure several times after calving. And, and that is how we ended up doing in this case, because we're missing a lot of information of doing at calving and seven days after. So I kind of asked my standard question. I asked this at you a lot when you were my student. What would you do differently? No experiment is ever perfect. So what, what would you do different? What would I do different? Um, I guess balancing um, the diets a little more, like like Glenn, uh, Glenn said, with uh, magnesium, uh, making a little the, the diets a little more uh, similar, if you want. Um, that would be one thing. Obviously, if I have, I mean, I would not repeat exactly the same study, but uh, ensuring that I get the alfalfa that I was looking for uh, and checking on the on the on the cation and iron difference of the alfalfa before mm -hmm. receiving it. That, that that was a big flaw on the, on this study. I, I assume that alfalfa is alfalfa. Bring it, bring it, and and it, you know uh, that that was a, a huge oversight in this paper. Yeah. Just always remember the uh, stuff that's closest to the barn gets the most potassium. <laughs> <laughs> but on yeah, that on yeah. that point, you you fed. I don't know how. It's part of my question earlier was was you know how much uh, of the uh, the halides did you have to add, you know, and you said about 400 grams. If your difference had been bigger in your forages um, on your decad, would you have had to feed, what, six, maybe 700 grams of material now? And that's all mineral, right? I appreciate that comment because, yes, that was key key on, on, the, on the thinking uh, when, when we were designing the experiment. Um, you know, we always say that anionic salts, uh, they depress uh, dry matter intake. Um, now, when I was testing the polyhylite, we included between 400 and 500 grams per cup per day. Okay. And still everything was, was, was going well. In the case of chloride, calcium chloride, it's a little more, uh, it's the, it is stronger, uh, so you can you can add less and, and have kind of the same acidification process. The initial hypothesis, because cows were performing well in previous studies, we said, okay, let's go for more acidogenic product. Maybe we can counterbalance the potassium of the alfalfa with more acidogenic product. And nowadays, by the way we, we feed um, cows nowadays, maybe we are not going to have such a drastic uh, depression on dry matter intake. Also, if we see in the old papers about the use of acidogenic products, uh, one of the biggest one uh, is from Dr. Otzel in the past, and they were feeding the acidogenic product uh, with the concentrate separated from the forage. 
Uh, and, and typically we don't do that anymore. So um, even though the, the depressing effect of the acidogenic product on dry matter intake can still be there, uh, maybe we, we, can, we can go for more uh, uh, acidogenic products. Because it, it, didn't, it didn't look that it caused an intake issue, uh, which is no, a well, high positive for it. On the chloride, there is, as I told you, there was a tendency to decrease uh, dramatic chloride, intake. Yeah. yeah, on the chloride. Um, I, I don't know. If you go to a chloride, first of all, in this in this case, all the all the acidogenic products were in a pelleted concentrate. But typically, the pellets that they have the chloride, and even though this was chloride dehydrated, uh, sorry, de, yeah, dehydrate, um, is very hygroscopic, and also if you if you grab some of it, you start to feel some heat, you know, from from it. So yeah. uh, I don't know if the palatability is related to that or, or, or something like that. I was going to say I was just surprised that the polyhydrate apparently it must not have it must be have a different palatability. It seemed like it didn't have any negative effects on on dry matter intake. And I just wonder yep. if uh, six or seven or eight hundred grams would it make a difference either? We 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 fed in the very initial one. Uh, <laughs> it was not a, a control study. It was just a pen feeding, trying the animals, uh, and feeding the animals and measuring urine pH. There we fed half a kilogram. Uh, even in, in both, well, in that group they were either hosting and jerseys, and and yes, it seems to be. Um, a good product. I, I don't know. To me, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm biased mm -hmm. now because I started from scratch and suddenly it worked. You know? so yeah. It's a, a neat, neat story. I just would want to, again, for the audience, remind we were talking about intake depression or not depression. There is no non-DCAD control in this. So you're right. comparing chlorides to, to the halides. You're, they both may have depressed intake. We just, the they have behaved similarly. Is what you. It's, that, one was not that, worse than the other. That's that that's, is correct. Yeah, but the intakes were yeah. for dry cow pretty decent. Yeah, they were right where they should be. I think. Yep. Um, do you think um, on the forged types here, and if let's say there's, and I don't want to use any brand names, but there are commercial decad products out there. Do you think you'd have seen the same non-interaction between forage sources and other decads? So if I understand the question correctly, Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm rephrasing uh, just in case. You are saying if I would have used a, a commercial salt, an acidogenic product, would I have seen uh, an interaction with the forage? Yeah, uh, you didn't I don't this, this paper. There was no interaction, which makes it nice. Do you think if yeah. you use different different anionic sources, it would still stay that way? Both forages would behave similarly? I guess it would depend on the composition of the, of the, of the product first. Um, that's a good question, Bill. I, I don't know how to answer that one, hey, to be honest. Maybe not, maybe not. If you can balance, I mean, if you think on the, Acidification only if you're reaching the same decad, uh, you shouldn't see an interaction. Other than thinking on the on the on the typical nutritional composition like NDF concentration, yeah. forage, and all that, yeah. maybe not. I, I agree because again, you had a chloride-based 
acidification and a sulfate-based acidification. The, the commercial products are same basics. So I think this is, it can be extrapolated. You know, we never know. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to extrapolate the lack of interaction to other sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just curious a little bit about the, the sulfur issue. Um, how high did you get? I have to go back and look. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a few, actually, maybe it was more than one year ago, uh, I had uh, Jesse Goff visiting here at Virginia Tech, uh, and we discussed this, and he, he, he raised the question of, oh, you're, you're feeding a lot of uh, sulfur here. Uh, the values are 0.3, almost 1% in one of the diets, uh, 0.2 and 0.6. And I think, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, NASM now says the maximum adequate intake would be 0.4 if I'm not wrong. There uh, is an interaction between higher grain diets, it would be 0.4, higher forage diets, 0.6 would be about it. I was going to say that there is a comment on the NASM saying that when you have a high forest diet, you can be a little more permissive on the concentration of, of sulfur because I think there is a, a, a mechanism about the, the rumen pH and the release of the dissociation. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It would that the the point six doesn't worry me for the short term, but almost one percent sulfur that's would be a concern to me on on uh, both to direct toxicity and clearly you're you're messing up trace minerals, but that's a, a short term thing. But right, percent right. offers a lot. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, Chelated um, copper. Yeah, so definitely in selenium yeast. Definitely need to look at some maybe chelated products in those kind of situations. Just to wrap up with my last question for you, and that's what what would be the next next experiment in this area for you if you'd continue in this area? Yeah, yeah, I, I do want to continue in this, and actually I put a follow up grant, uh, but they didn't. They, they decided not to fund it. Uh, you know me, Bill. You know that I'm a, a my undergrad degree is more on the agronomy side. Uh, so, and forages is, is, is my, my, my passion. Uh, I would like to get a little more data on, you know, the, the effect of fertilizers and fertilizer doses on how we can manipulate, if we can, the, the cation and ion difference in the, in the alfalfa hay. Uh, that would be something interesting. And then, obviously, you have a, a, an agronomy component on that research, but then follow it up with, uh, with the cow study. So we will go ahead and call last call. And with that, uh, what I'd like to do is kind of get a, uh, you know, just one key point, one takeaway that you'd leave the audience um, with from the conversation today. And Glenn, I'm going to start with you. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasher Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash well, I, you know, what I took away from it is the, you know, we've, we've got a lot of producers out there that are trying to, you know, either find or grow, you know, hays and alfalfas that are, you know, low in potassium so that they can, 
you know, manage their, their DCAD issues. And, uh, you know, hats off if we, you know, can show them that, in fact, you can manage it without uh, having to, to do that specialization. There's some advantages, obviously, to the dairies. Of course, there's always the question of, of cost, right? Uh, obviously, if you have, if you can, you know, basically acidify a diet, but the amount of acidifier you use has to get to be a pretty high level, then that, that's a cost to the dairy as well. So, but it's uh, it's an interesting concept, and and now I know about polyhalides, so learn something every time. Yeah, uh, Gonzalo, one thing I don't I don't think we mentioned it, but you um, spent several years as a consulting nutritionist, so very applied. And so uh, I'm just going to ask you to maybe what kind of applied advice could you uh, give uh, consulting nutritionists out there basis this research? I love that you asked for it because uh, it's exactly what I was going to say. Um, one thing that I learned a lot uh, being in the field is to not get stuck in the theory sometimes on the, on, the, on the biological principles. And sometimes you need to be flexible and, and, and get out of the box and, and, and try different things. Um, that is kind of my, my, my key message. Don't, don't get stuck to, oh, do not feed this ingredient to this cow. Um, you can still learn and do it uh, by, by relying on the theory, but, but being a little more uh, flexible, which is in line with what Glenn just said, I think. All right, very well. And Bill, as a resident expert here, any, any uh, thoughts you'd uh, leave for the students? or for, uh, for the audience? Two, two things. One is rule one in nutrition. There's, there's, there's not bad ingredients. There's only bad diets. Absolutely. So you can, you can make things work. And, but of the specific of this paper, I think the big thing is the lack of an interaction between di basal diet and DCAD. Because that means, again, if, if diet affects the response to DCAD, then you have to start, things get much more complicated. But a basal diet pretty much is independent of DK. That that makes life a lot simpler. Yeah, very well. All right, Gonzalo, Bill, Glenn, thank you for sharing your knowledge tonight, your time, and the conversation has been quite compelling, so I really appreciate that. Uh, to our loyal listeners, uh, thank you for coming along once again uh, to this episode and sticking around with us as we explore more topics. We hope you learned something, we hope you had some fun, and we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests, so please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash realscience to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.